Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 16, 1-9. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, would you come now by your Spirit and work powerfully in our midst? Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to be changed by you. Lord, help us to become more like Jesus. Help us to see him this morning. Lord, would you do a work all the way down into our hearts and outward into our actions? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Great, uh, great to be here. If you're new or visiting, we've never met before, my name is Daniel. I am a church planting apprentice, uh, and Lord willing, in case you did not know, we are planting a church. I am planting a church with a number of other people this September 2023. So thank you for your support, for helping us do that, and grateful to be here, to see some familiar faces, to see some new faces, and to open God's word for us this morning. If you, if you have a Bible, I do invite you to open it up. You can turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 16 is where we're going to be this morning. We're, we're picking up our series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and, and we finally come to the last chapter in this incredible letter Paul has written to the church in Corinth. Paul, if you will, has kind of finished these main rocks. He's placed the main rocks in the jar, and the, the main topics he, he's covered in his letter, and, and yet there's still a number of details he wants to mention, and so he's going to kind of cover them in this last chapter in, in pretty quick succession. It's like a, when you, you're preaching a sermon, and you're 30 minutes through a 40-minute sermon, and you're only on point one of three, naturally, and you just got to quickly hit the other two points, rapid fire, uh, hypothetically, of course. Um, anyways, that's kind of what Paul's doing this morning. Uh, and at first, it seems a little disjointed. And in a way it is. There's two very different topics that Paul is covering this morning. And yet, at the same time, both of these topics stem from whom Paul has just declared God to be. Look at verse 58 of chapter 15. So you just go up one verse before a section. This is a context Paul's operating in. Paul will say this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. John Piper, a pastor, once wrote that God is a mountain spring and not a watering trough. God 
is a mountain spring and not a watering trough. Uh, Both a mountain spring and a watering trough provide water. Both of them, if you are weary and thirsty, provide refreshment to your soul and to your life. But a watering trough can go dry. When you approach a watering trough, if you're wise, you drink sparingly. You, you ration your refreshment. As you scoop up that water, you, you're careful to not let it fall through your fingers because you don't know when it's going to run out. And that's all you got. And so you better preserve it. But a mountain spring never runs dry. A mountain spring spontaneously overflows. It, it pours out and it pours out and it pours out. And so when you come to a water, uh, uh, mountain spring, how do you drink? You get down on your hands and your knees and you drink and drink and drink until you're satisfied. You, you run off five minutes later, you, you come back and you drink some more if you want. You, you take some of that water, you scoop it up, it doesn't bother you if any f- spills out. You, you run to your village, you tell them, you need to have some of this. Here, here drink, and, and better yet, go, go to the source itself. There, there's a mountain spring that will never run dry. Our God is a mountain spring and, and not a watering trough. Now, why do I say that? If, if you listen to that verse again, verse 58... Hear it. It says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That word, abounding, has the idea of going over, of excess, uh, of overflowing, like a mountain spring. Uh, Paul is inviting us this morning to to pour out our lives like a mountain spring. Which is crazy. Which is absolutely foolish. Unless our God is an infinite and endless source of life. The, The reason we can spill out, pour out our lives is because God has first poured out his life into us. He's a fountain that's poured into us and so we can spontaneously overflow. Actually, the reason God does pour into our lives is so that we would then pour out into the lives of others. So this morning, what does it look like to live an overflowing life? Two points, because that thing about having three points and going too long is, is real. So two points this morning. First one, overflow of our possessions. And secondly, overflow of our plans. First, overflow of our possessions. Ready? Okay, look at, look at verse one to four again. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Paul here is responding to a question the Corinthians ask about raising funds. And so Paul is going to give some clarity about what that process will look like. 
You see, Paul is asking a number of churches, the, 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 church, the many churches that he's planted, to help raise funds to send the, those funds back to Jerusalem. The Christians in Jerusalem have come under a hard time. There may be a famine that is taking place, and so it's hard to put food on the table. And also, it's very likely that many Christians have lost their jobs because of their new faith and beliefs. And so Paul's trying to encourage these Corinthians to, to raise some money so they can send relief and help the Christians back in Jerusalem. And Paul is just very practical. Okay, so there's some practicalities around giving this morning. The, the who, when, where, why. Anyways, let, let's, let's go through it. You'll see here. First, who gives? Look at verse 2 again. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside. Each of you. We know from reading this letter that the church in Corinth has quite a wide variety of socioeconomic well-being. There's the very wealthy, and then there's the lowly and the poor. And Paul says, each of you are to give. I think it's very easy to hear that and go, well, I see that person over there and, and they make so much more money than I do. And so that's a them thing. Or one day when I, when I hit that, that threshold or that barrier, then I'll live a generous life. Um, please hear this. Greed is not a temptation just for the wealthy. It's not. It, it's, a, it's a human issue. I think sometimes we can see our little and go, well, if I give a little bit of that little, what difference is that going to make? And I think we just are rationalizing it to ourselves. We're justifying our greed, actually. We're believing that we need more, and we're disbelieving that if we give of our finances, that there'll be enough left over for us. And Paul says, God is a mountain spring. He, he pours into our lives whatever amount that is so that we would then be able to pour out into the lives of others. Secondly, when do we give? Look at verse 2 again. On the first day of every week. Every week. There is an intentionality here Paul is alluding to regarding our giving. See, Paul is trying to build a, a culture, build a, a lifestyle of generosity into this church. It's not a, well, today I feel like it kind of thing. It's not a, that was a sermon on giving, so I should probably give type of thing. No, this is a, this is a lifestyle of generosity. I, th I think there's wisdom in saying, okay, here's my budget. What does it look like to be generous with how much God's given me? And then to, to take that, percentage of whatever God gives us and to give it to others and then we just live off the rest and we don't touch that money that we're giving away we've just decided I am a person who gives I give regularly I live a lifestyle of giving me thirdly where do we give again verse 2 on the first day of every week each of you is to put aside something and store it up on the 
first day of every week. The reason Paul alludes to the first day here is that first day being Sunday was the day the church gathered together. See, Paul is assuming that giving would be done through the church, that the church would actually handle the finances. The Bible speaks of the church as the engine for ministry. It is through the church, the, the church is the plan of God by which he accomplishes his mission. To make disciples of the ends of the world. To love God and to love people. That happens through the church. And so what the church is to do is supposed to equip and mobilize the individuals who make up that church. To use their gifts and their talents, so that then their financial generosity might be multiplied, might be maximized. Uh, I, I recently read an article that was discussing the financial impact a church has on a neighborhood and city. A study was done in, in the year 2001 by the University of Pennsylvania. So it's an American study, but listen to what they said. They said, congregations, I quote, are vital to the social fabric of Philadelphia. They're vital. And they take a major role in caring for the needs of people in neighborhoods. Major role. They go on to say, they estimate that if you were to replace the churches in the metro area of Philadelphia alone... A replacement cost would be $250 million a year to that city. That's in the year 2001. That's $2,001. And that's American dollars. It's like $10 billion Canadian dollars. <laughs> so it's a lot of money. That, that's how much it would cost to replace all of those social programs, all of the, the care that the church offers to the community. $250 million a year. Now listen, the church, the collective church, you add up the sum from all the giving of all those churches, the total is not $250 million a year. It's not. It's, it's a lot less than that. But through the church, their generosity has a greater impact. It has a multiplying effect. See, what does it look like to give to Christ City? Okay, so if you give of your finances here, what happens? Well, every year, the elders that you've appointed, let's just go through this. The elders who you've appointed seek the Lord. They, they prayerfully ask God to show them how we should steward our finances. They then create a budget which is presented to the church and the members of the church vote on that budget at the AGM. So listen, there's an accountability here, which I think Paul also alludes to here, right? So he says this at verse three, he says, when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit, you trust these people by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable, so if there's wisdom here that I should go also, then they'll accompany me. So, so there, there's a track record. There's, there's proper handling of those finances. So we present those, that budget to you, and then you vote on that. You approve it. And normally then this is what happens. Part of those finances goes to paying our staff, 
to keeping the lights on, to running the heat. And Lord willing, in the summer, eventually we will run our air conditioning, right? Then there's just the, there's the day-to-day ministries that happen. There's 1018, which we support, which is a ministry that cares for the refugee and the working poor in our city. We have a benevolent ministry, which, which deals with people who are, find themselves in a situation of financial crisis. We have just the, the day-to-day discipleship of, of walking alongside people, of providing people resources to help them grow in their faith, of, of meeting with people for coffee so that we can disciple them one-on-one. And when I, when I meet with people and I, and I buy them their coffee and they go, thank you, I say, you can thank the generous people of Christ City because you paid for that. You're involved in their discipleship. You're helping them in their walk with Jesus. We are to give to the church, and ultimately that's a giving through the church, okay? Now, the question you're dying to ask, how much? How much are we supposed to give? If you've been around the church, you have probably heard the phrase tithes and offerings, Now, you need to know the concept of a tithe is an Old Testament concept. It it comes from the book of Leviticus, or we first hear about it in the book of Leviticus, and we read this. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. That word tithe literally just means 10%. Okay, so whatever God gives them whatever he provides and cops or cattle or earnings or whatever, they take 10% of that and they give that back to the Lord. It's, an, it's a gift that would help keep the temple running. It would, it would pay for the priests and their well-being. So there's a tithe. Now, interestingly, you may not know this, the Bible actually, the Old Testament also alludes to two more tithes. So it's actually not 10% likely that the people of Israel were giving a year. It's closer to probably 30% a year. Now, before I freak you out and say 30%, um, you need to know, right? This is an Old Testament command. Phew. Um, th- this, is a, this is a concept that belonged to the people of Israel. Under the old sacrificial system. We are no longer under the old covenant. We're under the new covenant. We, we belong to a, a new era. We, we are not bound by those Old Testament regulations. And so we are not commanded to tithe. 10%, 20%, or 30%. But, please hear this. Generosity is commanded. Uh, Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and this is a command, he says, charge them to be generous and ready to share. We're to be generous. Now, what does it mean to be generous? Um... I heard a pastor helpfully say, if you're married, this is what you can do. You can write down a number that you think you should give. Your spouse can write down a number they think they should give. And then you reveal. You compare. And then you add them together. And you just give it both away. Uh, It's not biblical. 
maybe is helpful. Um, listen, the, the Bible here is not prescriptive. As, as, as much as that would make things easier, just tell me how much I'm supposed to do. Listen, God is not after your checkbook, first and foremost. He's after your heart. And so, for some of us to give 10%, that is generosity. That is sacrificial giving. For others, 10% is peanuts. If you make $10 million a year, for example, and you give away $1 million and live off of $9 million, you've given away a lot of money. But I don't know if you're being generous. I don't know if that's sacrificial giving. Maybe it is, but maybe it isn't. But we're to come before the Lord and ask him, God, what does it look like to pour out myself? To, to pour out my possessions. God, you've poured into me, however much, large or, or little, and, and how can I be generous with what you've given? Now, before I move on to our second point, please hear this. I need to say this. Christ City, you are a generous church. You are. I praise God. I am so encouraged and thankful for your generosity. Over Christmas, right, we had a goal of raising $100,000 for our Advent giving campaign to support uh, the Christ City Surrey Church Plant and to support biblical counseling, you raised $140,000 towards that. That is incredible generosity. When we present needs to the church, we send out a quick text or, or an email, you fill that need so quickly. There have been many times we've had to say, please stop giving. We, we don't know what to do with your money anymore. Right? You give on special occasions, and then you just give in the day-to-day -day routine of your life. You are a generous church. We just sent out an email update giving you our, our, our financial situation for the first quarter. We are well onto our way of, of doing what we believe God's called us to do this year. You are a generous church. I, I praise God for your generosity. In, in the fourth century, uh, the emperor of Rome was Julian. He was nicknamed Julian the Apostate. And he writes a letter and in this letter, he's just airing his grievances with the Christians. He's so frustrated because the Christians are spreading like wildfire. It's just, it's just he cannot contain the Christians. They're, they're growing and growing and growing and, and bursting at the seams. And he's so frustrated. And he writes this in a letter. L listen to this. He says, we ought to be ashamed. Not a beggar is to be found among the Jews. And those godless Galileans, he means Christians, feed not only their own people, but ours as well. Whereas our people receive no assistance, whatever, from us. He goes, these Christians, they just keep giving their money away. And because of it, the church is growing like crazy. I can't seem to shut the thing down. Look, my prayer, Christ City, is that God would, would make his name known and that his name would be proclaimed as great because of the generosity of this church. It, here it, in Vancouver, it, in Surrey, and to the ends of the earth, let, let the church of God grow because we are a generous people. Secondly then, overflow of our plans. Overflow of our possessions, overflow of our plans. Look at verses five to nine. Paul writes, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. For I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. 
For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul here is laying out his travel plans. He's trying to tell the church in Corinth when he plans to visit them. And I want you to see just how driven Paul is. He, he lays it out. He says, okay, so here's the plan. First, this is what I hope to do. I'm going to go through Macedonia. It's just to the north of you. And, and there, there's a couple churches I planted, the church in Thessalonica, the church in Philippi. I'm going, to, I'm going to help and encourage them. Before I do that, though, he says, I'm going to stay in Ephesus. I helped plant this church in Ephesus. There's a lot of work for me to do. And then he says, eventually, I'm going to make my way down to you. I'm going to stay with you. I have some things I want to work out with you. And he says, I hope you'll pour into me because I got a big plan. I got a big journey coming up. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I want you to help me on my way to that. And this is Paul. Just, he's just relentless in his pursuit to serve the Lord. He's just, just so driven. You, you hear it in his letters. He has a, a single focus to serve God in all that he does. I'm going to go here for the Lord. I'm going to go there for the Lord. I'm going to talk with these people for the Lord. I'm going to talk with those people for the Lord. It's all for Jesus, he says. Jesus has changed me. I just, I just want this to spill over and, and just go into the lives of other people. They need to know about Jesus, he says. Paul, earlier on in this book, he says this. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Yes, Paul here is talking about food, but, but it goes beyond that. Paul's modeling this broader principle of honoring God and, and seeing people come to know him, whatever he does. God saved Paul and he wanted to live his life for him. Let's be a church that lives that way where we plan to serve God in everything we do. In every moment, every day, every situation, every interaction, it's for Jesus. And that doesn't need to be some extraordinary, I'm going to travel across the globe plan like Paul had. It just be in the, the ordinary day-to-day -day of our lives. Right? So there's a, I have a plan. God, I'm going to get up in the morning for my children and I'm going to just read my Bible and pray in quiet. Then my kids are going to wake up, probably before I hoped they would, but still, we're going to eat breakfast together, I'm going to hopefully do a devotional with them, then I'm going to get them in the car, and I'm just going to pray that one time this week, instead of being frustrated at them because they can't find their shoes, even though they're supposed to put it in the same place every time, instead of that, I'm just going to pray for my kids, I'm just going to pray a blessing over them. And then I got a plan. Okay, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to work hard unto the Lord. I got a plan. Maybe in a year I'll ask for a promotion, have greater influence, make a greater impact in, in the workplace. And then I got a plan. I'm going to go to the barber. I'm going to see the same barber that I've been seeing for a while, hopefully develop a relationship. Maybe I'll be able to tell him about Jesus this time. Then I'm going to go home. I'm going to eat dinner. I'm going to have steak and wine to the glory of God. And I'm just going to enjoy that as a way of saying, thank you, Lord, for your provision in my life, for the abundance you've provided in my life. Then I'm going to check in with my wife, see how she's doing. Then I'm going to go to bed, and then I'm going to do it all over again. But it's all for the Lord. Listen, it's not how much you're doing. It's not do more. It's not work harder. It's an intentionality. God, whatever it is, 
is for you. All my plans are for you. Now, Paul has a plan, but you need to see it's one that's also very flexible. Uh, Paul goes, here, this is how I think I'm going to serve the Lord. But then he says, okay, God, you're ultimately in the driver's seat. You, you get to change that plan. So, so listen again to these words. Verse 5 and following. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may be helped, help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now, just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Right? He's got a plan, but this just in pencil there. Maybe the plan changes. If the Lord permits, I'll do this. But if not, I go do something else. James puts it this way. James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You have a plan to live in Vancouver live in a certain neighborhood, have a certain house, have a certain job for your, your family to look a certain way. And God goes, I might change that plan. You might move to Surrey. <laughs> and you laugh, but maybe he could, he could do that. I pray he does. Look, there's, there's a lot of ways God directs our plans. One of the ways he directs our plans is through the word. We read this. This is God's word. This is God speaking to us. He says, this is what your life should look like. And I go, yes, I do that. He speaks to us through the word. He speaks to us in, in prayer. When, when, when we come before the Lord in prayer, we're having a conversation with the Lord. And what he does is he refines our passions. He, he hones our desires and, and he gives us an, us an awareness of, of needs around us. He's, he's directing us in our prayer life. He he's directs us in just regular day-to-day -day wisdom, right? So Paul says, I, I want to come to you and I don't want to just pass through. I'm going to spend some time with you because Paul's just written a really hard letter to hear. And he goes, I might need to clarify some things. Th this transformation process might take a little bit of time. I'm going to have to walk alongside you for a little bit. There's some, there's some wisdom here. God directs us through the church, Maybe someone comes and, and gives you a word of prophecy or, or maybe we just share our plans with someone in the church and, and they can speak wisdom into our plans as well. They, they can have a say in it. Like, like, help me see my blind spots. Maybe I need to see that actually I'm not doing this for the Lord. That, that's, an, that's a selfish thing I'm doing. I'm, do, I'm doing that for me. The, the church should be invited to speak into your plans and then the Lord directs you through your circumstances. Maybe the Lord opens a door. There you go. Maybe he shuts a door. Okay, go somewhere else. But because nothing is outside of God's control, that's him leading you. That's him directing you for your good. Plan how you're going to serve the Lord. Present those to the Lord and then be willing for him to change them. Now, I want you to see one more thing Paul says about his plans here. It's fascinating. Verse 8 and 9. 
He says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Did you catch that? Crazy. A wide door for effective work and many adversaries. Opportunity and hardship in one. Paul talks about his hardship, his challenges in Ephesus elsewhere. Earlier in this letter, he says this, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Now, I'm not, I'm not sure if that, those are literal beasts. It's probably a figurative beast, but he said, I'm, I'm dealing with people, and they're like wild beasts that just want to destroy me and devour me. In the book of 2 Corinthians, he writes this, he says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. That's Ephesus. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. It's easy for us to think, man, Paul's receiving this pushback. He's going through this hardship. Paul, don't you know if you want to serve the Lord, you need to be alive to do that? And it feels like at any moment they're, they're going to kill you. Maybe you should get out. And Paul goes, no, no, no. This is not a closed door here. The door is wide open for me. Man, praise God for this opposition. This is an open door for effective ministry. Listen, sometimes the, the reason we are encountering hardship and opposition is because God is about to do something incredible. The reason we encounter opposition is because our battle is not against just flesh and blood. It's against the devil and his demons. And the devil and his demons do not want to see the Lord glorified. They don't want to see spiritual fruit come about. And so when they know that maybe something is about to happen, there's a great opportunity here. The devil fights hardest in that moment. Uh, let, let me speak personally for a second here. So a couple months ago, I'm trying to find a space for us to gather in in Surrey. And I find this building, and I think it's great. I think it's awesome. I think it's going to work wonderfully for our, our future church gatherings. It doesn't, I think it's all, all the pieces are going to kind of fall into place. I don't know why we wouldn't be able to meet there. And, and turns out, two months ago, they go, sorry, you can't meet here. And it's hard. Um, really hard because it's been a challenge to find something, to find a place to gather in. And I'm catastrophizing now and just go, okay, woe is me. There's no, there's no places in Surrey, obviously. Maybe I shouldn't even be in pastoral ministry. And I know I, I, it sounds crazy, but my sinful, just fearful heart does this. And so anyway, I just said, okay, for one week, I'm not going to <clears throat> look for a place to meet. I'm just going to meet the Lord in prayer. And then a week later, I get a phone call and uh, this person says, hey, there's a church building. I found a church building. There's this great church, big property. Uh, the church is kind of looking for a restart, uh, except it's, it's not in Surrey. Honestly, that, uh, that was the uh, the next two hours were the two hardest hours in a long time. Because there's this battle raging in me. 
Like God, maybe I am supposed to do something differently. Maybe I am supposed to go and plant a church over there instead of staying in Surrey. And honestly, it's the grace of the Lord. It's the Lord speaking to me and giving me peace and clarity in a moment of prayer that he just says, Daniel, I, I think the, the reason you need to do this is because there is opposition. Daniel, because it's hard to find a place to gather is precisely why you need a, a church to gather in this area. And Lord just blows wind in my sails and keeps me moving along. Now, I, I don't say that to sound like the, the hero of the story. Please hear me. There was a, I, there was a lot of hardship and I did not respond as, as I would like to. I, but I say that to invite you in. Please pray. Please pray that the, the, a wide door for effective ministry would be opened up in Surrey despite there being great hardship. And then speak to me, right? Be, be my wisdom. Be my counsel. Go down. That's stupid. You should go plant somewhere else. Or... Say, yeah, keep going. We'll, we'll wait on the Lord. Maybe there's some of you here right now. You feel like God is calling you to something. There's an open door, but you look through that door and go, there's hardship. That might not be the Lord turning you around. It might be him actually inviting you to press in even more. So let me try to bring things full circle here. What is it that enables us to give generously of our possessions? What is it that enables us to lay our plans before the Lord and to live for him in all that we do? It's not, again, trying harder. It's not pulling up our bootstraps and go, I'm just going to press in and, and be better and do more and be nicer. That's, that's not what it is. Change will happen through faith. Through belief. Listen, in as much as you believe that God is a mountain spring and not a watering trough, you will be able to pour out your life for the sake of others. I think we have sometimes this scarcity mindset when it comes to who our God is. We, we, we believe that God is, is kind of holding on to his possessions or that there's only so much of himself that he's going to give to us or that when he does give to us, as one pastor put it, he's like a begrudging judge who's kind of been cornered by an attorney and, and forced to give us of himself. And please hear me, that is not true. That is not our God. And this passage proclaims a great promise to us here. You need to see this. Okay? It's just two words, but these two words make all the difference. Look at verse two again. On the first day of every week. It's the first day of the week that makes all the difference. Please hear this. The first day was a Sunday, as I said earlier. And the Jews, they didn't meet on Sunday. They gathered on Saturday. But then something happened on a Sunday and thousands of people across the known world then start to gather on a Sunday. Do you know what that is? It's the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus rose on a Sunday. That's why the church gathers on a Sunday. Listen, we may celebrate Easter once a year, but we celebrate the resurrection every week. And if Jesus is alive, then my life can be one of overflow. Please, please hear this. If our Heavenly Father gave us Jesus, his one and only Son, that means our God is not a stingy God. If Jesus rose from the dead, then so will I. 
And so will you if you put your faith in him, which means your greatest treasure is not in the here and now. It's in heaven. If Jesus is alive, that means the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in you by the power of his Holy Spirit working in the service of others. If Jesus is alive, that means my pain and my struggle and your pain and your struggle are just temporary. And if Jesus is alive, that means he can take whatever plans come our way, even the plans that seems to be the worst of plans, and turn them out for good. Because he used the very death of his own son for my salvation and your salvation. We are gathered this morning because Jesus is alive. And if you believe that, then believe it all the way down. Let our lives be one of faith. Let our lives be one of overflow. He has overflowed into us so that we might overflow into others. So let me end with this uh, story. Alan Gardner was a English missionary who in 1851 began a new missionary endeavor to South America. On his journey to South America, his boat was shipwrecked. And he landed on a remote island, and despite trying his hardest, him and his companions, to survive, they all died before rescue could come. Rescue never came. They died without food, without possessions, away from family and friends. Their plans had completely gone astray, and they suffered great hardship. Eventually, Alan's body was discovered. And next to his body was his little red notebook. And on the last page of the notebook, he wrote this. He quotes Psalm 34. He says, The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. How can he say that? He's just about to die. He, he's dying of starvation. What do you mean you don't have any want? All your plans thrown out the window to go to South America. What, what do you mean you don't lack want? Listen, right, be, right beside that verse, he wrote this. I am overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. I am overwhelmed. He says, God's love has flowed and flowed and flowed into me. And I'm overwhelmed by that love and that goodness. And he experienced the goodness of God. And now he was with that God. And nothing could take that away from him. Would you please stand as we respond together?